Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Hey, everyone. We had a new format for this podcast. Jessica went into the wilds of New York and does a podcast live. Live! (laughs) So you'll be hearing plenty of city sounds and maybe a dog, but not Lulu. It was actually a cat named Lady, and she was delightful. (laughs) But yes, we were lucky enough to have Lily Danziger on the podcast. She does so many wonderful things. I was amazed she offered her time. It was one of those situations where I was on Twitter like, hey, guys, I have a new recorder. I don't know if it works. And amazingly, she just said, hey. I will help you test it out. And this is the result of that. You know, Twitter is a marvelous place. It's pretty incredible, especially since this is such a neat conversation, I think, that we have. We go everywhere from the Mermaid Parade at Coney Island to growing up in New York to just what it's like to lead the literary life here. That's awesome. Yeah. So I had to look Lily up and I went directly to her Twitter feed and I just love her bio. So she has a novel, Burn It Down, by Seal Press coming out next year. She's an editor at Narratively. She's an instructor at Catapult Story. And she's just an all-around cool chick. I like how she says bylines all over town. It's true, too. <laughs> it's true. She absolutely does. I love that she has this memoir reading series. I think that's so cool. Yeah. So if you've ever wondered what it would be like to have the epitome of the writer's life, in New York City. Stay tuned. So my name is Lily Danziger. I'm the deputy editor of Narratively. I'm also a freelance essayist journalist. I'm editing an anthology for Seal Press right now called Burn It Down. It's an anthology about women's anger, which is really exciting. Timely. Yes. (laughs) Very timely, very uh, necessary, I think. Um, I also am working on a memoir that I'm hoping to be shopping around in the fall. And I freelance edit and teach as well, so I kind of work on all sides of it. I think a lot of people in our industry do a lot of things. A little bit of everything, yeah. Which is nice, though, that a lot of different parts of our brain get to do different stuff, and we're never bored. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I think it also makes you more sympathetic as an editor, understanding where people are are coming from, or as a writer, understanding why editors are maybe not writing back to you right away, because... I have an equally full inbox, so I understand where they're coming from. And a delightful cat, which everyone might have heard a second ago. (laughs) It's okay. We welcome pets on this podcast. There's a dog that barks pretty much every time we try to record something. We love Lulu. It's fine. (laughs) This is real-life podcasting. This is not studio podcasting. Yeah, if you heard that scratching sound, that was just Lady making sure to get her point in there. So did you always know you wanted to work in editorial? Um, Not necessarily specifically... In the editorial world, I always knew I wanted to do something creative. Um, I've known I wanted to write for a pretty long time. I was raised by two creative people. My father was a sculptor and painter, and my mother was a fashion designer. Wow. So, yeah, I tried out a few different things. I danced for a while when I was younger, um, but it became clear that that was not, there's not a lot of longevity in that career. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've been writing 
since I was a kid, actually packing. I just moved and packing and going through boxes and stuff. I found a bunch of poems that I wrote when I was like eight years old. Oh, that's amazing! <laughs> it's like, oh wow, yeah. I don't write poetry now at all, but at one point that part of my brain existed, so that's good. I also moved recently and found some poems that I wrote in middle school. Uh, so dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> So dramatic. And oh, the sort yeah. of thing where, like, you know, the cringe reading series or yeah. Mortified. Mortified, yeah, yeah. Oh, I wish that was still something that was happening all the time because, boy, do I have a lot of yeah. material. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I love that aspect of it because then it's like, you know, that's the version of you before you learn to edit yourself. Totally. And it's good to get to access that once in a while before you're trying to play by all the rules and boxing yourself in and sometimes preemptively blocking what could be good ideas. Yeah, I think it's good to write wild and then cut back. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and a lot of people kind of do the opposite. They, like, write in a tame way and then try to add stuff after. Yeah, that never works quite as well. It never does. Yeah. <laughs> it never does. Um, so what are some things writers might want to know about you before submitting work? I guess the biggest thing is just to get to know narratively and get to know the publication. I know everybody says that, but it bears repeating because there still are clearly a lot of people who just submit blindly and don't really pay attention to where they're submitting or who they're submitting to. Um, narratively has a pretty specific style and a pretty specific type of story that we're looking for, and usually if you spend a little time on the site and read the guidelines, you'll have a sense of that. And I try to be really transparent. You know, I've written a few Medium posts explaining you know what we're looking for. I put out calls and Twitter threads and stuff and, and just try to be really, really clear about what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully you know, if people are paying attention, they can figure that out. <laughs> it's pretty amazing how many people don't even try. It's wild. Yeah, I guess they figure um, that they would rather put that work on the editor. It's easier for them just to send it out, whatever, and then, you know, I appreciate the idea that you should always try. You know, you should aim high, you should see how it works, but that's not the same thing, I think, as just sending your work to everybody and then leaving it to the editors to sort out where it actually fits. Right. Also, it makes me sad when I see that people are doing that because then I'm not a person to them. I'm someone who can do them a favor. Yeah. So when you see agents on Twitter talking about submissions mistakes, is that something that you relate to in your field as well? Definitely. Yeah. I think across the board, you know, an editor at a publication or an editor at a press or an agent, you know, they're all very different, but we're getting a lot of the same things, a lot of the same issues that a lot of them come from people just not doing their legwork ahead of time, not doing their research, not taking a minute to familiarize themselves with either the guidelines or, you know, that person's area of interest. (laughs) So yeah, a lot of, you know, totally off the mark submissions, you know, people laugh about, or I see a lot of agents kind of talking about people responding really negatively or responding hostily to rejections. Um, I don't get a lot, I don't get quite so much as of that. I don't get quite as much of that as I think agents do. Um, when people are sending their book out, it's a lot of emotion invested there, which I understand. My manuscript was rejected 47 times, oh. so I know, <laughs> I know how that feels. So I don't get as much hostility as I think agents do, but I do get argument and people asking for explanation or, you know, demanding to know why or... Gosh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes I think agents should have to send out even a project that doesn't exist. Just, like, write a query for something, send it out, and see how it feels to get shot down all the time. (laughs) Because I suspect even that fake project that does not exist, you'd still be like, but why? (laughs) No, and I, I mean, I understand that, you know, I totally get 
that feeling. You know, I, I get work rejected all the time. You know, I freelance as well. I'm trying to sell a book. I, I know how that feels. Mm-hmm. But I also know that you're not going to talk somebody out of rejection. <laughs> somebody, <laughs> if somebody turns your idea down, you can't convince them. Right. That, like, you actually know better than they do what they want. Mm-hmm. That's not how it works. Yeah, I remember the first conference I went to. I was so afraid someone would be like, but I'm a rocket scientist. I work with NASA. You rejected my book. Like, what do you know? Yeah. It's like, true. I am not a rocket scientist. <laughs> no, but I know books better than you. So Well, and also, if I don't understand your rocket science book, I probably shouldn't be working on it. That would be irresponsible. It would just crash. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> pun intended. No. That's mean to rockets. I yeah. apologize to the rocket scientists yeah. out there if there are any listening. Yeah. Um, so you also teach. Mm-hmm. What do you tell your students about what makes for a good, successful writing career? Well, I teach a, a personal essay class at Catapult and focus more on developing craft. I think you know it starts there. Yeah. Like a lot of people want to jump ahead and want to talk about having a career. But you're not going to have a career if you haven't spent time on the work. Mm-hmm. If you're not really developing your work, your voice as a writer, what you want to say, um, spending time with that before you worry about jumping ahead and pitching and selling and how to position yourself for a book deal and, and all of that. And I mean, all of that is important, and you should be worrying about that too. You know? yeah. But um, first and foremost, it should be about the work. Mm-hmm. So that's what we mostly talk about is, is how to write. Yeah, a lot of people seem to think that they don't have to do that work if only they find the magic formula for pitching. Yeah, we'll think they can build a writing career out of smoke and mirrors and we won't notice that there's nothing at the nothing at the core of it. Well, I think, I think people take the fact that the work is so subjective to mean that they could just not try and if they get really lucky... And, and or find the magic formula. It can just kind of work out, as if it is all an illusion. Right. Anyway. Or whether they're trying or not, they think that if their work is getting rejected, it's only because the editors are wrong or they don't mm-hmm. get it or whatever, and not because maybe they need to work on their craft a little. Yeah. It is pretty shocking how much time everyone needs to put in to be ready, though. Yeah. <laughs> and that might be part of it. Maybe they're like, it couldn't possibly take this long. But it does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have you read that book, um, NYC versus MFA? I have not read it, but I've, I'm familiar with the debate. <laughs> I, think, I think it's so fascinating because it is two very different ways of going mm-hmm. about it. Um, yeah, I really loved seeing people's arguments on that. I thought mm-hmm. it was really cool. Okay, this is a question from my co-founder. She says, I see that narratively has really interesting categories for submission. Memoir, renegades, super subcultures, hidden history, and secret lives. What is your favorite to come across your desk? Yeah, um, so those categories we created, again, as kind of a way of helping people navigate and understand what we're into and the kind of stories that we want to tell. And and we didn't create those categories and then find stories for them. We looked back at the stories we'd published and realized that all of them fit into those categories. We're like, all right, let's just define these as set things. And I specifically edit the memoir section. So that's, that's where I live. And I guess, you know, some of the other categories intersect with memoir yeah. sometimes you know we might have a first person piece by somebody who if it were a profile we would consider them a renegade or you know whatever it might be but um, memoir is specifically what I'm focused on that's it's so fascinating to work with memoir because of course there's the version that they remember mm-hmm. there's the version that if they were recording it like we are would be there 
And then there's the version that everyone works on together to present it so it's more universal. Mm -hmm. And it's such a sensitive process. Like, I always feel nervous giving notes to a memoirist just because they are the expert in this one particular area. Do you feel that too, or is it just over time you don't worry about that? Uh, no, I mean, I, I try to be aware that, you know, all writers are sensitive about their work, but then there's a whole other layer when that work is also your life. Yeah. <laughs> and usually, or at least often, um, some pretty painful or intense experiences and that, you know, I try to be sensitive to that when giving notes, but I think in a way, sometimes being the expert in the experience makes it harder to mm-hmm. write about it in a way that will make sense and be accessible to readers because you are inside of that experience. You're so familiar with it that you can have blind spots and not know, you know, what seems really obvious to you might not at all be obvious to the reader. And so sometimes you need that outside voice and outside perspective to say like, Hey, okay, this might make sense to you, but I have no idea what you're saying. Yeah. (laughs) Slow down and explain or that definitely happens because if they have the full picture in their head, how do they know what is and isn't on the page without help? Exactly. Yeah. That's so hard to do. Do you have any tips for getting to the emotional core of a story? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about, right? That's the hard part. I think that's another case where it really comes down to putting the time in and the effort. And that's something we talk about a lot in my personal essay class at Catapult is how to go beyond just like, I'm going to write down what happened, which you can sit down and do in half an hour sometimes. Um, and how to really interrogate yourself and sit with the story and spend some time thinking about it and really let yourself be open to surprising yourself as you're telling the story and paying attention to the reactions that you're having as you're writing. And a lot of times it's the things that you are trying to avoid, you know, see like, okay, you've really jumped through a lot of hoops and bent over backwards in this story to not explain this one thing. What is this? Tell me about this. And that a lot of times is the core of the story. Mm -hmm. It's the most sensitive, vulnerable part that you want to protect. That's usually what will really be rich and fulfilling to explore. So it's whatever scares you. Often, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So if you get scared, that's a good sign then. Yeah. Hmm. So the more uncomfortable you are, the better you're doing, maybe. Yeah, it's a weird... It's a weird... (laughs) It's a weird profession. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense, though. I, um... I used to have a writing teacher who would say that as soon as you started backing away, that's when you knew you had to, like, lean in. And I think she said, go for the jugular, which is violent way of putting it but totally yeah and then you know when I'm writing if I make myself cry then I know that I've gotten to something good yeah and I'm usually in life not a person who cries easily but when I'm really digging deep into things in my life that really need to be talked about you know that's the stuff that the stuff that makes you uncomfortable the stuff that you pull away from that you have a visceral response to that's, that's the good stuff. And sometimes it seems like the stuff that is the most personal is also somehow the most universal. Oh, yeah. Definitely. No, I mean, that's that's one of those counterintuitive rules, you know, where people, sometimes beginners will try to keep a story really general because they want it to apply to a lot of people. But yeah. actually, the more specific to you it is, the more likely it is that somebody will resonate with it. Because it feels real. Then it feels like you're a real human being and not mm-hmm. uh, like an Aesop's fable kind of caricature. <laughs> Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because it's almost like, 
to some degree, we all have a lot of the same emotions and the same combinations of emotions, whatever is causing them. Mm-hmm. So even if we haven't been in that particular circumstance, we can relate to all of the feelings that are totally. on the page, too. Yeah. Yeah. So is there anything writers should know about the difference between submitting to you versus to an agent? I mean, there are totally different fields. You know, submitting an essay, I'm concerned with that piece. Whereas, you know, an agent, a lot of times they're concerned with the bigger picture and your whole career. Um, And that's, you know, that's not to say I don't care (laughs) about what else you're working on. And, you know, if you have, if you're an expert in an area and you have a big platform to promote the piece with, then great. You know, I'll be excited about that, but I'm not going to require it. Mm-hmm. as much um which is great it's yeah. <laughs> so required for yeah. nonfiction now yeah I, you know I mean I think of it more I know that I, I'm part of the process of helping a lot of writers build that platform mm-hmm. you know and kind of a lot of pieces that I've published on narratively have turned into books or oh, gotten cool. people book deals and it's it's kind of a a step on the way to figuring out how to tell that bigger story yeah, that's amazing. So you're helping them creatively and in their career, too. Visibility. Ideally, and, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm always impressed when I see that someone has published a lot of short pieces. When they come to me and they say, oh, and I've been published here, here, and here, I call it the italicized section because mm-hmm. they italicize where it's been. <laughs> yeah. um, that's always really great for me, and I, I'm actually surprised more writers don't spend more time doing that because mm-hmm. it's such a valuable thing to do. It's good for them, it's good for the readers, it's good for the publications. I wish more people would do that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's also just like, you know, small steps you have to build up mm-hmm. to it. You want to jump in to the big project without having any familiarity with how it feels to be edited or mm-hmm. how it feels to have your work out there and have people responding to it. Yeah, and, that's pretty scary yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> scary enough with an essay, you know. Yeah, do that absolutely. first before you do it with a whole book. <laughs> Um, so do you have really short timelines and turnarounds? I had always heard that about shorter pieces. I mean, compared to books, yes. Uh, but compared to a lot of other online publications, no. Mm-hmm. We actually have a pretty long production process. Um, usually between a pitch to publication, it's about three months. Oh, that's so fast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, I've, I've written pieces where I pitch in the morning and it's online by that night. That's amazing. So, that's, so three months is, is slow for the internet um i'm impressed that you get it down to three months though i mean it makes sense if it's shorter and everyone's working on it but um yeah my friend uh jokes that wouldn't it be funny if we had warp speed wednesdays where things actually didn't take forever (laughs) publishing (laughs) Uh, it's not really practical but um that's so cool so then if something's happening in the world and someone has an idea in the morning someone can write it during lunch or so and then it's up that evening yep that's so cool. <laughs> I love that. That's incredible. And yeah. then you're just like, refresh cash, done. Yep. Love it. Yep. Absolutely It's love very it. satisfying. I can't yeah. even imagine. <laughs> like, that level of instant gratification is just... It's good, but there's, you know, there are the downsides, too. You can't develop your idea as much as you might want to. Mm-hmm. You know, there... That, I had a contract, a couple of contract jobs for a while where that's what I was doing. I was pitching in the morning and writing in the afternoon, and then it would be up either that night or first thing the next morning. Wow. So it was great because I got to chime in and, you know contribute to the conversation as it was happening right then but it's also you know a lot of the things that are happening in the world right now ask for some more deep consideration Mm -hmm. and maybe some background research and some context and all that and you know I can write a hot take in an hour now but I can't write a like deeply reflective 
researched big picture piece of an hour. I don't think anybody can. But what if you're just having a bad day? Like, what if you just didn't sleep the night before? Then it sucks. Then it takes a lot longer. (laughs) I guess that's being a professional, right? Like, you just, you make it happen. Yeah, I mean, then sometimes, you know, there were days for sure where a piece that, you know, on a good day would take me an hour instead took me six hours and was pulling my hair out. Why is it taking me six hours to write 750 words? What? going on but you know sometimes it happens I'm sure a lot of people listening are like that's still really fast (laughs) (laughs) I think everyone's mind is still on three months that's so unfair (laughs) (laughs) do you have a process for when you're like all right I need to get something done it's not happening do you have like a ritual or anything that works for my own writing Mm -hmm. um I actually giving up as far as <laughs> I mean, no, I used to, if I'm on a deadline, it's one thing, but I try when I have the flexibility to not try and drag myself kicking and screaming through those slow slogs where it's just not working Yeah. because it, it never really works. I can, I can push myself through it and write some crap mm-hmm. or I can walk away, make lunch, wash my face, take a walk yeah. and come back. And usually it works better. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I will use that time productively rather than sitting there staring at the blinking cursor. And just getting madder and madder. <laughs> I know how that goes. Mm-hmm. So I imagine you have a really fun, creative life in the city. <laughs> so, and you're, I'm sure, huge amounts of spare time. What do you do? Um, not a lot, actually. I'm a pretty big homebody. I was a bartender for 10 years, so I kind of have had my fill of nightlife. Yeah. You know, and I feel like... I just stopped bartending uh, about a year and a half ago, so I really enjoy the luxury of being able to have like a quiet evening at home and go yeah. to bed at 10 p.m., like, ah, drink some tea life. with the cat. And, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's great. Um, I, I mean, I do, I try and go to readings and book lunches and stuff, um, you know, at least one or two a month feels mm-hmm. reasonable, yeah. maybe just to... Um, remember that the literary community is made up of human beings and not just avatars on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, that's really important. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's, that's Do you have better. favorite places to go for readings? Um, I go to Powerhouse Arena a lot. Oh, that's They're so great. Cool. Yeah, and that's, they are now the wonderful and gracious hosts of Memoir Monday, which Yay! is the series that I'm hosting. Congratulations! Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a narratively collaboration with Catapult, Guernica, Granta, The Rumpus, Long Reads, and Tin House. What? Yeah, it's a weekly newsletter and monthly reading series. Okay, so how do all our listeners get on that? It's narrative.ly slash memoir dash Monday. Nice. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Congratulations. How did you make that happen? Um, We initially were talking about having dedicated newsletters to different sections narratively, and memoir is kind of the most fully developed as, you know, having its own identity, so we decided to start there. We started a weekly newsletter of narratively's favorite memoir stories, and then I started pulling in pieces that I liked from other publications and around the web, and just started thinking, like, oh, what if this was big like community collaborative thing and it was not just narratively's newsletter about memoir but like the newsletter about memoir Ooh, <laughs> <I love it. laughs> thinking big um so i made a list of you know the the publications that i had kept returning to and that yeah. you know i was always pulling in to the newsletter and in places where i would always look first for good first person writing and i i made a 
kind of ambitious list, and everybody I reached out to said yes. Every <laughs> single person? Yeah, so that was How great. did you do it? You're like, hey, let's go do this thing. I mean, it was a sweet deal. You know, it was like, hey, I'm doing this newsletter. Do you want to put your publication's name on it and be featured in it every week and, you know, That's have, amazing. have a big collaborative thing? And so, yeah, of course. So... That is such a smart, wonderful thing to do. Yeah. Good job. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, and then it grew pretty quickly into the, the reading series. That's something that I wanted to do for a while, and, and Memoir Monday just seemed like the right thing to turn into a reading series because we have yeah. you know, the built-in audiences of all these different publications and all these great writers that are being featured. And, yeah, we just had our first one in April, and it was a big success. Congratulations. So. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Oh, I love that space, too, and I love yeah. that neighborhood. Yeah. Have you found that little four-foot beach that's right under the Manhattan Bridge? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. (laughs) It's so funny to me that you can be in the city and then go down a little, like, paved but, like, faux wild path and end up just, like, at a little spot of sand. Yeah. I wouldn't sunbathe there or get my feet in the water, but it looks nice. I did touch the water. I didn't (laughs) turn green. That's good. I wanted to feel, like, how warm it was. I was curious enough just to, yeah. I mean, who knows what's in that river, but it looks nice. Yeah. I took the ferry recently. It was very, it was lovely. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. One of the things I love about living here is that there are so many things like that mm-hmm. here. Um, is that what drew you to New York or have you been here? I'm from life? here. Yeah. I grew oh, up here. that's so much. That's yeah. so cool. <laughs> Where did you grow up? Um, mostly in the East Village. Also a little bit um, Williamsburg and Bushwick. Oh, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Wow. So what are some of the favorite events you've been to on your time in New York? Ever in life? Yes. Um, I guess, you know, I mean, the Mermaid Parade was yeah, a favorite. Yeah, I love the Mermaid Parade. But it's, you know, I think everything, I don't really go to any of, like, my old favorite things anymore because they are, they've all become, like, spectator mm-hmm. sports. You know, the last time I tried to go to the Mermaid Parade, it was a bunch of just, like, drunk college kids Aww. being like, yay, none of you are even in costume. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know anything about Coney Island. Go home. Uh, can you describe what the Mermaid Parade is for people who are <laughs> Yes. Um, the Mermaid Parade is a big celebration that happens in Coney Island every year, and it's usually right around my birthday, so that's why I loved it as a kid. Um, and it's a lot of, like, drag queens and weirdos and artists and who dress up as mermaids. <laughs> and sea creatures. And, and sea creatures and wear, you know, glitter and crazy headpieces and big wild tentacles and all kinds of crazy stuff and dance around on the beach and on the boardwalk. I love when they all run into the water in their costumes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like you spent all this time making it, you look fabulous, but there you go. Yep. Go, enjoy. <laughs> yeah, that's really fun. I remember being so surprised when I learned that 30,000 people would dress up as sea creatures and convene in one spot. Yeah. It's yeah. a pretty cool thing. It's a summer tradition in the city. Where I grew up, nothing like that yeah. ever, ever. We had a parade for butter and eggs, and that was the biggest event of the entire year. Yeah. A few people dressed up as chickens. That was, that was cute. Mm-hmm. That was cute. So how much coffee do you drink? Because you do a lot of things. Um, I actually, most days, keep it to one cup in the morning, mm-hmm. um, but I am an avid snacker. Oh, yeah? What are your I, favorites? I've been eating these vegan chocolate chocolate cookies lately mm. that are actually like tastier than you would think. I eat a lot of like chips and hummus and smoothies and 
bread and cheese and just things that I can stuff into my face all day long. If, like, yeah. The blood sugar keeps me going. It is know? good to have stable blood sugar when yeah. fighting. Yeah. Yeah. I make a habit of not doing anything too important if I have not had lunch yet because, yeah. you know, low blood sugar means typos. It yep. just does. Yep. It just does. Um, so if you lived in a world without publishing, <laughs> what would you do? That's... A tough one. Um, You're like, invent publishing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, I would probably... I would probably work in some kind of, like, non-profit or advocacy space. Um, I've fantasized about, you know, another life being a doula. Wow. Just, you know, somehow being in a position to, like, advocate for women when they need somebody to speak up for them. Oh, one that's way or another. Yeah, either doula or, you know, working with sex workers' rights or reproductive rights or something like that. Cool. The world needs a lot of that. Yeah. If we could is. just copy-paste you a few times, send, you know, five or six of them off to do that. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like I should do that. And I'm like, what am I doing sitting here writing stories? Like, I'm not helping anybody, but I don't really think that's true. I think stories save a lot of lives. Yes. <laughs> and they reach a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is always that question, right? Like, I always feel bad for writers who are like, well, I could write about this, or I could go out and do this thing. And Mm -hmm. it's like, but what if you're the only one who could write it? You know? Yeah, and somebody out there really needs to read it. Definitely. And And maybe they'll go out and do all kinds of things. Yeah. But yeah, I am also someone who likes to stay home. Yeah. And so (laughs) the thought of going out and doing things. I have friends who, you know, lead political campaigns and are always just so on it. And I'm so impressed. Yeah. But um, I also am a big believer in doing a thing that only you can do. For sure. And it sounds like you're doing a lot of things only you can do. (laughs) So well done. Thanks. Um, If you had venture capital set aside for anything you wanted... What would you make or build or create? We're talking, like, billions of dollars here. Um, I, my, like, if I won the lottery fantasy was always to buy a building, probably in East Village, just because I want to take a little piece of it back, Mm -hmm. um, and just have a artist space with grants and, you know, just a space where people can come and work and you know have a dance studio and a writing room and a reading room and a nap room (laughs) I love that so you're giving people the space to be creative yeah I think that's you know in my experience a lot a lot of time the hardest part to find and you know Mm -hmm. if I had a lot of money I would you know in addition to a space in the city I would love to make a writer's retreat that Mm -hmm. was free and funded you know, not just free, but, like, here's your train ticket. get there, and, like, here's some, a stipend so you're not missing out on work, and all of that. Oh, that's like, so nice. covering all that, and just give people, you know, a week or a month or whatever it is they needed to sit and focus. Um, that's, that's the part I'm, I'm always chasing, is, like, the time and space to focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if I could give people that, that would be great. I think in the modern world, a lot of people are looking for the time and space to focus, and it's getting harder and harder. Yeah. I'm not even sure why it is that we're more busy. I don't think we really are. I think we're just, like, constantly inundated. I feel like social media drains so much of my time and attention. Mm -hmm. And I've a couple times gone on these, like, self, you know, self-driven or whatever you want to call it, retreats where I just go to an Airbnb for a couple days. Oh, cool. And I think just, like knowing that 
I'm in a place and I've set aside this time to work and that that amount of time is finite, you know, whenever I catch myself wanting to go on social media there, I'm like immediately click off of it. And I'm like, what are you doing? Don't waste that time. You're you're here to write. Now, if only I could replicate that feeling in Mm -hmm. my office at home, (laughs) that would would be great. I love the idea of giving yourself something finite. Mm -hmm. And of course our time is finite. It just doesn't feel that way. Right. Then again, you don't want to spend your whole life like, well, I could die tomorrow. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> Better write this now. Yeah, yeah. That's, that gets a little intense. But um, yeah, I love the idea of basically making it financially and just practically possible for people to have that space in their lives because really, like, what's more important than yeah. that? Yeah. So that's very cool. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's if we're talking like venture capital for creative things and not including, you know, all the social issues that would be helped with billions of dollars. I would not go Elon Musk and go space travel over affordable housing. I would definitely right. go affordable housing first. <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know. But maybe you could do both. Yeah. <laughs> affordable housing in space. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, man. Might be better than some of the situations in New York right now. I would send the billionaires to space and reclaim their housing. I like that. housing here. You could yeah. put a lot of people in their houses. Yeah. I've heard, doesn't Bloomberg have, like, a different vacuum for every floor? I would not be surprised. I get it. I hate <laughs> hauling a vacuum up and downstairs. But well, like, it's not like he does it himself, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, can you tell us about your book and where we can find it? Sure. Um, so, my book is currently titled Negative Space. I don't know if that will remain. It's um, going to be shopped to publishers. Uh, hopefully this fall is the plan. Um, but it's a reported memoir. It's about my father's life. He was an artist and a heroin addict. He died when I was 12. So I inherited this massive body of artwork from him. And so the book is kind of me trying to use his artwork as a way into understanding more of who he was. Because um, he died when I was so young. You know, I never got to know him as an adult. And... When I was in my early 20s, I became fixated on this idea that you, know, you don't really grow up until you can see your parents as people. You know, my father died when I still idolized him and, and didn't fault him for anything. You know, there were a lot of there was a lot of trouble. You know, he went he was in and out of rehab, and my parents split up, and he didn't always pay child support. There was a lot of things I could have faulted him for, but I didn't because I was a kid and he was my dad. Yeah. <laughs> so I started thinking, you know, okay, I'm not going to ever really grow up until I can create a more real, like, multidimensional image of who he was as a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I planned to do it in, like, a year or two. It started out as my senior thesis in college. It's like, I'm studying journalism. I can do this, no problem. Finish it. I'll have a book out by the time I'm 23. It'll be great. Ah. Uh, I've been working on it for like, almost 10 years yeah. now. So, so to answer that, does it really take that long question? Yes, it does. Um, I was rejected 47 times. Accepted once by a small press, and then I ended up actually canceling that deal because mm-hmm. um, I just there were just too many red flags, and I realized they were, what was going to be put out was not going to be something I was happy with, and mm-hmm. not going to be something that was going to do well in the mm-hmm. world. And after all that work, yeah, I just couldn't deal with that, so I pulled it. Um, and now I just finally got an amazing agent, and. After I publish this anthology, then we're going to focus on getting that out there to a 
better press and out in the world. Congratulations. Thank That's you. really exciting. <laughs> and so amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it was a huge growing journey for you, too. So, like, that's a really good thing you've done for yourself also. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's really cool. <laughs> I'm very impressed. Thanks. Um, so, do you want to talk about the anthology, too? Um, sure. Um, it's still in the pretty early stages. Uh, we're aiming to have it out next spring, um, spring 2019. A pretty short turnaround time just because it's so relevant right now. Women's anger is... <laughs> You know, having a moment, mm-hmm. um, and so I'm just reaching out to contributors now and kind of getting the lineup. Um, that's been really fun, and exciting. And every time somebody emails me with the idea of what they want to write about, I'm like, yes, yes, amazing. <laughs> uh, and you know, starting to to generate a list of like topics just to make sure that I I get the bases covered. I want to represent like you know a really wide range of experiences and women. From different backgrounds, um, want to ha- make sure to have you know, trans women, non-binary people, uh, women of different ages, races, all of that. There's a lot to consider, you know, and it's a little, it's a little nerve-wracking trying to put together an anthology that is representative of something as huge as women's anger. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's massive and so multifaceted, and there are so many dimensions of it. You know, there's no way. possibly going to cover all of it in 20 essays Mm -hmm. but I'm going to do my best (laughs) that is a fascinating topic yeah I'm very glad someone's covering that yeah uh, I just proposed a panel related to it for AWP oh that's wonderful so hopefully they'll accept that I also love it because so many women are taught to not show or talk about their anger exactly yes And it's, it's always amazing to me when people finally dive into those subjects. I'm listening to a book now about how niceness can be a positive in mm. business, and I didn't realize mm. how many times women are taught, no, you have to be tough, no, you have to do this, no, you have to do that. And I feel like for so many things we're supposed to be, we have all of these things we've been told our whole lives, and not being angry is a big one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And But, it, you know, being told not to be angry doesn't mean that suddenly you're not angry right (laughs) so it just takes all of these other forms um which is one thing i'm really interested in talking about yeah it's kind of like when people are like calm down oh okay why did i think of that (laughs) (laughs) now that you say so yeah (laughs) um so where can we find you online um twitter is the best place to find me online probably um my handle is just my name it's at lily danziger it's l-i-l-l-y-d-a-n-c-y-g-e-r Great. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. So I listened to the podcast just like everyone at home. Such a treat. It was so relaxing. <laughs> Thanks, Jessica, yeah. for all the work there. Um, but there's something I was like, there were so many things that kind of hit me or resonated. And the first was when Lily was talking about the smoke and mirrors and writers <laughs> and their writing career. Yeah, it's so true. A lot of people really do think that they could just, you know, slap a manuscript together as long as there's a perfect query letter. Someone will buy it. No big deal. That's not how it works. <laughs> I know. I When I was putting on a writing conference, a live writing conference, we had um, one particular manuscript that was submitted and we didn't know what to do with it. It was so kind of out of the box of all the norms And I remember the person that we finally gave it to was so kind. And we said, I'm not sure even where to start with this. And it turns out the writer just 
the whole story came to her in a meditation and she just wrote it down. Wow. <laughs> Which is cool, but you still need to really dive back into the industry norms and what people want and, you know, word count and everything else. And I think it was a disappointing experience for her because she really felt that it was perfect. Um, so, you know, no matter where you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter what degree you have, no matter, you know, how long you've really been at it, at writing, you still need to be working in your craft, working in your craft, reading, working on the craft, listening to podcasts, you know, going to conferences. It, it's, it's, it's a, a continuous process. I think it's pretty rare for something to come to you like a lightning bolt fully formed. It happened to me once and it has never happened to me again. I wrote a short story for a workshop in college and like a college student that I was, we already established I hit snooze a lot. I decided I was going to write a 20 page story the night before. Good life decisions. And I got so lucky. It really did all just happen. I remember sitting in the library, just like type, 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 type. And I think that went over better than the stories that I actually worked on. So that was insane luck. That was the only time that has ever happened to me. A lot of us did that in college because we were in a place where our brain was crackling with work and words and stories and we were doing it all the time. So you were doing the work. Well, it's, yeah, it's kind of like going to the gym every week, right? You're not just going to out of nowhere be able to lift that much weight, but kind of slowly working on it. Yeah. I was turning in a 20 page story every other week. So like, yeah. So, so I mean like that's that you're doing the work you were in, you're in, in the zone. It wasn't like, you know, you were, I don't know. Trying to do that now. There is absolutely no way that I could write a 20 page story by tomorrow. Uh, Now I haven't done it in a long time. I think it's, yeah, you work up to it. Yeah. You're in the zone. So yeah. So another thing that really struck me was, um, you know, this whole idea when she talked about the emotional core of memoir. And one of the interesting things that I see like in my writing groups and at the Marisburg Academy is that a lot of people want to write memoir, but they don't really want to tap into that, that fire that's beyond the story. And I'll be, you know, you you sometimes will say to people, oh, this is a story about your mother. And and they'll be like, no, no, I'm not going to touch my mother, but it's all about their mother. And I think that, that she just really represented that well. She did. I, I loved how we were talking about how you have to go to that place that scares you. Yes. And if you're not scared, you're not close enough. Right. And if you don't get your character, you know, if it goes into fiction, if you don't get your character in scary places, then your character is not going to have opportunities for emotions either. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a scary thing. I think it's, um, everyone kind of has the idea that it's super easy because it's writing about yourself. So you're the expert, but it can also be the hardest because how do you know if it got onto the page out of your head? Yeah. So that was really interesting. But, you know, all in all, I thought this was a fabulous podcast. And I really want to hang out with Lily. She's really cool. Her cat's cool, too. She's so lucky. So you can find Lily online at Lily, L-I-L-L-Y-D-A-N-C-Y-G-E-R, also in our show notes. If you want to read an anthology about women's anger, extremely relevant at the moment, it'll probably make you feel better, not more angry. Um, In closing, I think Lily is an example of how increasingly fluid the publishing industry has become. It's so cool. There's so many opportunities. And I encourage you at home to be brave with your writing and go to the emotional heart whenever you can. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. 
Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.